teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. We're going to be uh, back in our series on marriage, and it seems uh, that maybe this series has been making a positive impact on some, based on a letter I saw uh, recently from a young man. Uh, It reads this, Dearest Betty, Sweetie of my heart, I've been so depressed ever since I broke off our engagement. Simply devastated. Would you please take me back? You hold a place in my heart no other woman can fill. There is no one like you. I need you so much. Won't you forgive me and let us make a new beginning? I love you so. With great affection, John. Sweet letter, huh? P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. (laughs) Maybe there's an ulterior motive there. Uh, Okay, letter's not real, but I do seriously hope that as we have been going through this series and looking to God's Word for His instruction on how He has designed marriage and His intention for men and women within marriage, that you've been encouraged and challenged to apply it. We've been focusing on the guys the last couple of weeks, and I thought it only appropriate and fair that we spend one more uh, Sunday morning addressing the women. That way it'll be two each and I'll be, uh, can't be accused of uh, not being fair. But uh, we're going to be looking at Titus 2 this morning to look at several attributes of the godly wife. You were introduced to one earlier as I read from Proverbs 31. Just an amazing woman who had such an impact on her husband and her children and her community. And before looking at Titus 2, I wanted to introduce you to another woman who also had a profound impact on her family and her community, and her name was Athaliah. She was married to King Jehoram of Judah. Uh, Jehoram was a, a man who had quite a lineage. His father was King Jehoshaphat and his grandfather, King Asa. Both men were considered godly men who walked in the ways, it says in Scripture, of their father David. They, under those two individuals, Judah had enjoyed over 60 years of peace and prosperity and worship of the one true God. But all of that stopped with Jehoram. Second Kings 8.18 says that he walked in the ways of Israel's King Ahab. You remember Ahab, right? Ahab and Jezebel. They hold a special place in Israel's history. They're the most wicked king and queen to ever have graced the pages of Scripture. Or at least one of them. They'd be in the top five. If you remember as well, they were uh, committed to abolishing, to eradicating the worship of Yahweh in Israel. In fact, they had an ongoing uh, campaign to kill all the prophets of God. They had been involved in promoting Baal worship, even in the temple. They were not someone you want to be compared to. And yet here, Jehoram, that was his legacy. He was walking in the ways of King Ahab. When Jehoram became king, he cruelly murdered all of his brothers to remove any threat to the throne. He brought idol worship into Judah, gross immorality. And as a result of that, peace And security, the peace and security Judah had enjoyed for 60 years was gone as several nations around them would attack Judah. And one of those attacks resulted in all of Jehoram's sons being killed, except for one. And Jehoram's life ended with disease as his bowels came out of him. Very painful, painful death. 
And when he died, he was such a man, it says in Scripture, nobody regretted it, nobody cared. In fact, he was not even buried with the kings of Judah, but was buried in shame. And when asked to ask, how in the world did Jehoram get there? How could such a man who was given an incredible godly legacy of his father and his grandfather, how could he end up in a situation like that? The answer was given in 2 Kings 8.18, where it says, He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did, for Ahab's daughter was his wife. In eight short years, this man undid all of the good that was done by his father and his grandfather. He led the people into great wickedness, into turmoil. And all of this, the writer of Kings says, because of who he was married to. She had a huge influence, Athaliah did, in bringing about the evil and iniquity in her husband's life and in Judah. And not only did she influence her husband for evil, but also her own son, Ahaziah. When he took the throne, it says in Second Kings uh, Chronicles 22.3 that Ahaziah too walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. For his mother was his counselor to do evil. She's quite the contrast to the Proverbs 31 woman, isn't she? That Proverbs 31 woman inspired peace and prosperity in her home. She had a tremendous influence upon her husband's life. In fact, he was honored in the community because of her. She had a huge impact on her children. They were respectful and joyful. Proverbs 31 woman cultivated a home that was full of trust and care. Athaliah, what was her legacy? She influenced her husband to terrible deeds of wickedness. He died in dishonor. Her child was a scoundrel. And there was no joy and peace in her home. Now, why bring her up? Why bring up these two women? We've talked a lot about men the last couple of weeks and how their role as leaders has a major effect on the family. But that doesn't mean that wives are not a shaping influence within their homes. That you women can have an amazing impact for good or for evil in your family. And I don't envision anyone here to be uh, Athaliah or going down that road. But she and the Proverbs 31 woman show you that you can have a significant impact on your husband. Don't shortchange yourself. You can have an, an amazing impact in your family. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. There in that verse, we really have a summary of the Proverbs 31 woman, the wise woman building her home, and Athaliah who t- tore it down with her own hands. And I know that uh, you ladies desire to be that wise woman, to be that godly influence for good in your home, to help build a godly legacy that will extend in your children's lives and into their children. And I just want you to encourage you that to realize, make you realize, help you realize that you play a significant role in that. And this morning, I want us to look at Titus 2, where we see several ways, several practical ways that you can be that godly influence in your home. So please uh, turn there with me and stand as we read from Titus chapter 2. This is Paul speaking to Titus, and he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. 
Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. We'll stop there. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, we need to remember, uh, Paul had left Titus in the island of Crete in order to identify qualified elders to lead in the church, men who would teach sound doctrine, men who would protect the flock from the false teachers that were numerous on that island. And to counter the error that they had received, these people in Crete had received from their culture and from these false teachers, Paul tells Titus, in these two chapters, uh, instruction, he gives them, this is the instruction you need to give to basically everybody within your church, to the young men, to the older men, to the young women, to the older women. And the instruction that Paul directs here for young women in verses 4 and 5 was not only needed then to counter the false teaching and the attacks on God's design, it's needed today, isn't it? It's just as important today. If not more so, the women's liberation movement, which gained steam in the 70s, published a manifesto called the Declaration of Feminism. Part of it says this, Marriage has existed for the benefit of men and has been a legally sanctioned method of control over women. We must work to destroy it. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. Beloved, why did God make marriage? He's the one that designed it. He's the one that created it. It wasn't created by uh, men. It wasn't created as a, a means to have control over women. Though I know in some situations that has taken place. But God's intent for marriage was to be a blessing, to be a place of stability. In fact, marriage is the one and only relationship on this entire planet that is made and designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and us, His bride. It's the only relationship that can do that. Marriage holds a very critical, important, and special place in God's design. And we've been talking about that a lot because we need to have the conviction and the understanding that God made marriage and He made marriage to be something treasured and He designed men and women within marriage to reflect and to picture the Lord Jesus Christ and how He treats, how He feels about, how He cares for His people and how His people are to respond to Him. We don't need and should not and never consider to work to abolish marriage but to fulfill God's intention for it. God made husbands to reflect, reflect Christ as a sacrificial leader who loves. God made wives to reflect the church's role of submission and respect. And Christian, we, we again must have a conviction about this. We, we have to understand what marriage is for. We, we need to understand our roles and responsibilities within it. Because the world and our culture wants those roles to be washed out. And of any time in our nation's history, there's a clear and evident attack that's growing exponentially against marriage, against God's design for marriage. Our culture wants it to be indistinct, our roles to be interchangeable. They see marriage as outdated, as unimportant. 
But God's made it clear what marriage is to be. And He's made it clear what He expects from us in that relationship from a husband and a wife. And so here in Titus 2, 4 to 6, Paul gives six characteristics of a godly wife. Uh, remember, again, young women uh, is, refers likely to those under 60, those who are still uh, having children in the home. Of course, these principles would apply beyond that. But these six characteristics that Paul has given to Titus seem to be coming in three pairs. And you may be wondering, well, I I see seven things here. Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But there's three pairs. I think that's how Paul has structured this passage. The first pair is focused on a wife's affections. She's to love her husband and her children. The second pair is a wife's attributes. She's to be sensible and pure. And third, the third pair is a wife's ambitions. She's to be a good worker at home and subject to her husband. And if you look at this list, you'll notice that the qualities that begin and end the lists are pertaining specifically to the home. That tells us that in God's eyes, He's designed women for family. So let's begin with the first two characteristics, which I refer to as the wife's affections, a wife's affections. She's to love her husband and love her children. Both of those phrases are actually one word in Greek. The the first is the word philandros, which comes from uh, two words Paul put together. One is phileo, which may sound familiar to you. It's a word for love. The other is andros, referring to husband or an heir. The next word is philateknos. Again, the word phileo combined with technos, which is technon, which means children, child. So Paul's literally saying here that wives are to be husband lovers and children lovers. You probably noticed again, both of these have that word phileo in there. That's one of the three uh, Greek words for love. Anyone know what the most common and popular one in the Bible is? Agape. That's right, agape. That sacrificial, unconditional love and care for the benefit of another. There's the word also eros, which doesn't occur in the New Testament or in the Bible. And that's a word for romantic or sexual love. And then there's this word phileo. Now, phileo does significantly overlap agape. It also, too, has been used in passages to communicate that sacrificial love. But at the same time, it's also nuanced towards the the affection, the emotion that you can translate it to be fond for, to have a fondness for, a care for. And Paul here uses that word to communicate the need to have a familial affection for husband and children. Now, we think about that to be a husband lover that might seem like a strange instruction on the surface i mean wouldn't you expect that if a woman falls in love with the man of her dreams and marries him that of course she'd like him some of you are smiling (laughs) right we why would paul command us to have to work at this and we need to remember a couple things one is first the culture in which paul lived Many women at that time didn't have a choice in who they married and often were not well treated by their husbands. In fact, they were often seen as just necessary for uh, producing and caring for children. So cultivating an affection in that relationship would not be easy. Now in our culture, we do have the opportunity, most women do, to choose who they marry. And though he may be your Prince Charming, he still will not always be easy to live with, will he? He may be insensitive or hurtful, or at times he, you may feel under, underappreciated or ignored. He will offend and sin against you, sometimes in terrible ways. And the world says, well, you don't have to stay with a guy like that. 
You don't have to continue to go on with the guy who's lazy or, or mean or unloving or unfulfilling or, or harsh or, or just cruel or, or impatient. Or You don't have to stay with a guy like that. I mean, it's like, it's like going to a restaurant. When you order something that you don't like, you just have the waiter take it back, right? Well, our world would say, you know, in the same way, if your husband isn't what you thought you ordered, just send him back. You don't have to put up with that. You, you have a right to be happy and, and to have what you want. That's the world's thinking these days, isn't it? In fact, I have heard uh, some that have altered the traditional wedding vows from as long as we both shall live to as long as we both shall love. Significant difference there. God has something different in mind. He desires wives to be a husband lover, to nurture affection for him. To show the world that you can love someone that may at times be hard to love or may often be hard to love. And notice it's the first quality. It's the first thing that Paul starts with in this list of six characteristics. To be a husband lover. And that that says something. That says, ladies, your husband and your marriage is your first priority. And you show love to your husband by, let me give you a few things to consider. One, making time with him. As important, setting a time aside, even in the midst of having kids or responsibilities to make sure that you are giving him priority. When, he, uh, when you see him, to greet him warmly, to show him that he is that priority. And if you do have children, you know, work at training them to be able to spend time on their own for 20 or 30 minutes. It, it can be done. It can be done. Because what can happen is they can consume your entire day and be a distraction so that you don't have that one-on-one time with your husband that needs to take place every day, really. Secondly, you can show him love by making time for intimacy with him. This is one way and a special way that your husband can feel connected to you emotionally. That you can communicate to him care and appreciation. Thirdly, find out what other things... Specifically communicate to your husband that he appreciates and would show that you care for him. What are things that he likes to do? Certain things maybe that he likes to eat. What does he appreciate? You know, I talked to men before about being a learner of their wives. Well, really, you need to learn your husband in order to be a husband lover. What are the things that encourage him? And then, ladies, pray for him often. Think about him often. Think of the ways that you are thankful for Him. If your heart is distant and cold right now, that's one of the things you can do because your heart will follow what your mind dwells on. So consider that. And I understand. I get it that your marriage may be in a hard place. That thinking about any of these things, like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way that would work in our relationship and what's been going on with us. Your husband may be unreceptive. Or the feelings for him just aren't there. And I would tell you this, remember Christ's love for you. Recall the affection, the care, the attention that He has given you. Remember that and ask God to help you imitate that love for your husband, for your spouse. And whether your husbands respond to that or not, that's not your goal, right? Your goal is to honor the Lord Jesus And follow his instruction to be a husband lover. To cultivate affection and care and nurture for your husband. Titus 2.4 also says wives are to be children lovers. 
can have an affection, cultivate a fondness for their kids, which that again might sound odd to have that kind of an instruction. I mean, you know, tonight when, uh, when we show the pictures of the babies at the baby dedication next door, uh, all the women are going to go, oh, look at that baby, how cute, right? You know you're going to do it, it happens every time. Why is that? Well, there's, just, there's a natural affection for a child, right? Every mother has this natural fondness for their kid. So why does Paul give this instruction? Well, again, in Paul's day, having a child was more of an obligation for wives. They were often treated like nannies, and so it would be easy to develop resentment for their children. But even today in our culture, the role of caring for children isn't considered a glamorous one anymore, is it? Children are often portrayed as an obstacle for women to happiness and success. And they aren't thought of as a blessing, but an inconvenience. If you have more than a couple of kids today, just take them around town with you. And you will uh, see that you're not going to be congratulated, but more often than not pitied or looked down upon. In fact, our society devalues children in an alarming way, as we talked about earlier today on the Sanctity of Life Sunday. How... 3,000 babies are murdered every day. And one survey showed that three-quarters of those who did have an abortion did so because having a baby would have interfered with work or school or other responsibilities. I know for those of us who do value children, who do want to raise them and give them instruction, and we hear this instruction to love them They still can be a tremendous test of our patience, can they not? It still can be hard to love them at times. You know, babies are cute for a while, but there's only so many dirty diapers and snotty noses and vomit sessions and sleepless nights and and, no, no, I don't want to and tantrums and all of those things. It can be hard to love that little guy. And things get really fun as your child gets older. Those of you with teenagers know what I'm talking about. You know, sorry youth, but that's just the way it is. It gets to be more of a challenge as you are growing in your independence and wanting that independence and your parents trying to figure out how to, how to work with you on that. It doesn't always go real well. And so it can be hard as a a parent to love your child in those moments. There'll be times that your child, right, will sin against you, will disappoint you, will disrespect you, will say things to you that you would never think a child should say or, or do things that are hurtful. They'll keep you up at night It's not just when they're babies, but when they get older, start driving and and doing those kinds of things. And that's why Paul says, be a a child lover, cultivate an affection for your child on a continuous basis. Continue to do that. Ladies, ask the Lord to help you see this, not as a a duty to be performed, but as a privilege to be desired. Show your children love by telling them often of the gospel and living it out before them, by talking to them about the Lord by instructing them from God's Word and and memorizing Scripture with them. Love them by praying for them and with them. Love them by seeking wisdom from Scripture to raise them. Love them by loving their Father and respecting Him. Love them by giving them appropriate consequences when they disobey. Proverbs talk about the fact that when your child is in rebellion and you do not bring consequences, that's not love. Love them by spending time with them, by playing games with them, by going on outings with them. I mean, just ask yourself and evaluate your relationship with your child. What is the kind of time that you spend with them? 
Is it time that you're building their relationship or is it often when they got in trouble or you're giving them instruction or uh, that kind of thing? What kind of time do you spend with them building a relationship with them? Love them by listening to them. Love them by teaching them to be diligent and responsible. Love them by being patient with them and by showing them grace. And you, those of you women who are uh, single, not yet married or having kids, uh, I would encourage you to consider volunteering to serve in the children's or youth ministry, to spend time with kids. That will also give you opportunity to ask mothers how they seek to love their children, especially on the hard days. Ask your mom how she did it or how she's worked at loving her kids. Or maybe ask her what the mistakes she made and what she learned from those. Not only will you learn a lot from her, but I think you will grow in respect for her. It's a tough job to be a mom. Let's look now, too, at at two more characteristics. Uh, The second pair that Paul gives, that is a wife's attributes. She's to be sensible and pure. Sensible is that same word that we talked about last week for young men. This idea of being sound of mind, of of being reasonable, of having a measured and orderly life. It carries the idea of developing discernment, good judgment, to not give in to extremes or foolish behavior. Uh, To be sensible really is to have self-control. And a sensible woman shows control of her emotions. She guards her heart. She does not let her feelings Dictate her action. She's level-headed regardless of the circumstances. Sensible woman shows control of her thoughts. She doesn't dwell on sinful thoughts about others or think about things that dishonor the Lord. Sensible woman shows self-control in her actions. She thinks before responding. Sensible woman shows control of her anger and of her bitterness. She does not dwell on how she's been sinned against or think of ways to seek revenge or or to build resentment or unforgiveness. Sensible woman shows control in her speech. She's discreet. She doesn't gossip or slander. She uses her tongue not as a weapon, but as medicine. Sensible woman seeks wisdom from God's word on how to be self-controlled and prays consistently. She seeks counsel from older women to help. In addition to being sensible, a young woman is to be pure. Her wife is to seek purity. That word means to be holy, to be blameless, to be morally pure. And given the context here in regards to marriage, the focus is on sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Right? It is God's will, it is His desire, it is His purpose that intimacy be for your spouse only and no one else. And remember, this isn't just talking about sleeping with someone. We're not just focused on the the big sin, but but even all the little ones that led up to it. It's like, you know, if you've taken a glass of of water and put in a drop of food coloring, what happens? Initially, that food coloring is in one place, right? The rest of the water remains unaffected. But it doesn't take long for it to spread to the entire glass. And it's the same way. That big sin starts with something small. Something that seems isolated, safe, not a big deal. An innocent look, an email, a a phone call, having coffee together. And and then it becomes an interest. And then infatuation. And then a desire for that man's attention. And all of a sudden, you're in a place you never thought you would ever be. So watch those little steps. 
How do you talk? How is your speech? Is it consistent with someone who loves God? Or do you discuss things you know you shouldn't? How do you interact with men? Do you spend a lot of time with them? Do you flirt or do things that that are trying to draw their attention? The more time you spend with him, the closer you are going to be to him. How do you think? Do you fantasize? Do you wonder what it would be like to be with a man who isn't your husband? When you read a a romantic novel or watch a, a chick flick or a romantic movie, do you picture yourself being with that guy in the story? These are thoughts that are to be reserved for your husband and your husband alone. Think too about how you dress. This is one you need to carefully consider. Before leaving your home, do you ever stop and ask yourself why you are wearing what you're wearing? Just as a a final check, are you trying to look nice or are you trying to draw attention to yourself? I remember going to my high school reunion a few years ago and some of the ladies there were still trying to flaunt themselves like when they were in high school. It's not pleasant. I'll leave it there. But ladies, let me be blunt for a minute. When you put on something that gives attention to your body, uh, most guys are not going to be looking at you in admiration or appreciation of your beauty. Most guys are going to be thinking about what you look like without those clothes on. That's what they're going to be looking at, considering, lusting after. Is that the kind of attention you want? Is that the the kind of notice that you want to get? And please forgive me for being direct, but, but God has made you to be loved and cherished by your husband. Not to have some other guy think of things about you that should never be thought. Listen to 1 Timothy 2.9 where Paul says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. That word modestly here has the idea of, of being ashamed to cause someone to be distracted from worshiping God. Discreetly is the same root here as sensible. It carries the idea of to control any desire to draw attention to yourself through what you wear. Not only in in showing skin, if you will, but also in the other things that you put on. Are you doing that to to draw attention or are you doing that simply to be be nice, to be presentable? So give careful thought to what you have on. And here's just my opinion. To me, I don't see any reason for a woman to show more skin than the average man does. That's from 3 Timothy. Just take that into consideration. (laughs) Sisters, God will richly bless you if you protect yourselves in these areas. But if you seek that affection outside of marriage, you're only going to undermine the thing that you really want. To have uh, be treated special by one man who will love you and care for you and, and cherish you and be faithful to you for his whole life. That, that's what you want. But, but if you go seeking it outside of the, the ways that God has designed for it and, and go outside the constraints that he's put in place, you're only going to undermine what you really want. You're not going to get that man that you desire, but somebody that just wants to use you. And I know that's not what you want. That's not what you deserve. So work at these things. Work at seeking to be pure, to be sensible. And I know some of you may have blown it here. That, that maybe you have not been pure. And in this whole conversation, you've uh, maybe that 
that twinge of guilt or you're feeling uncomfortable or you just want me to move on. Let me encourage you with a couple things. One is that, remember, God only condemns those who don't repent. That if you've confessed and sought His forgiveness, you don't need to feel guilt. That was put on the back and the body of the Lord Jesus as He sat and was hung on that cross. He's forgiven you if you've confessed it, if you're His child. Now, if you haven't yet confessed it, I would encourage you, don't, don't hide the sin. Don't hide it. You do need to confess it. And if you need help in doing that, find an older godly woman that you trust so that she can come alongside you and counsel you, pray with you, and help you confess it to those whom you need to. That's how God has designed reconciliation to work. Through forgiveness, forgiving one another. And demonstrating the forgiveness of God that He has shown to us by doing that. Now I want to draw your attention to a third quality just briefly. It's not mentioned here explicitly in the text, but it is implied. As Paul mentions at the beginning of verse 4, that there's this group that is going to be the ones doing the instruction, the encouragement, the training of younger women. It wasn't Titus. But Paul said to him that older women are to be, have these certain characteristics so that they may encourage or actually train, instruct younger women to love their husbands and love their children. And so that means if there is somebody that's going to be teaching you ladies and coming alongside you to do that, these older women whom God has deemed to be equipped to do that, that means that you need to demonstrate a certain quality and characteristic, right? In order to be taught, you need to be teachable, right? You need to be teachable. You need to be willing and desiring to receive instruction. Proverbs 15.32 says, He who neglects discipline or instruction despises himself. And when a mature Christian woman comes alongside you, gives you some advice on how to be a better wife or maybe on parenting or on how some things that you can do to manage your home better, you need to listen to them. You need to ask questions. And if you are teachable, you're actually going to be seeking that information and gathering women to yourself to ask them to take that initiative. Because carrying out these six characteristics And Titus 2 is not easy. In fact, it'll probably be among the most challenging things you've ever faced. And so God has designed it in such a way for an older woman who has been there to be able to help you. Do you have that kind of relationship, ladies? Is there an older woman in your life? That is the means in which God has provided to give you assistance. Is there an older woman? And don't be shy about asking for help. Don't think that you're being a burden. God has commanded them to let you be a burden. He's given a command to these older women that this is a means they are to serve and to disciple, to help you grow in maturity in Christ, to help you get through some of those very difficult trials and challenges that you would face as a wife or a mother. And you older women, do you have at least one younger woman? And again, ladies, I don't care how old you are, Do you have a younger woman that you have this kind of relationship with in your life? If not, find ways to do that. Get involved with moms or women's Bible study or one of the Sunday school fellowship classes we have here or some of the weekly flock groups that meet and and get to know a younger woman. To spend time with her. Cultivate that relationship with her. You, You really should be going to her. That's the intent, the implication here in this passage. They shouldn't have to be coming looking for you. And ladies, don't think that you have nothing to offer them. God seems to think that you do. 
If you've been walking with Him, you have something great that you can offer these women who, who need help. And if you can remember back to those days when you had little toddlers and, and a difficult husband maybe, or as your kids got older when they're teen years, and you're like, help, somebody needs to help me. I don't know what to do. I'm just not going to wake up today. I, just wanna, I don't want to do anything. I can't handle this. And God said, you know what? I have help on the way. It's an older woman that can come alongside you. You remember those days. So be, be a blessing. Be a blessing. And there's a third pair of characteristics that Paul gives here in Titus 2, verse 5. And that is a wife's ambitions. That is, what is her focus to be as a wife and mother? What is her mission? She's first to be an oikurgos. A word that Paul made up. He brought the words together. Oikos, which means home or house. And ergon, which means work. To work or, or works or deeds. Thus it gives the word homemaker. He wanted to emphasize a simple point. A worker at home. A worker in the home. A worker focused on the home. And right after oikurgos, Paul adds the word agathos, which means good or excellent or of high quality. Meeting a high standard of quality or worth. Most Bibles translate this word kind, and, and you'll see it on your list as uh, surrounded by two commas. Most of your translations probably have kind, right? You have a worker at home, then kind being subject. Actually, that word, this word kind, should go with worker at home. I think if Paul had intended it to be a, a quality or characteristic or an attribute, he would have listed it after sensible and pure. Also, too, if you look at the structure in the passage, there, there does seem to be three different pairs here that, that, that go together. So kind wouldn't fit within that. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, if you look at Paul's uses of the word ergon or work within his letters, that nearly every time when he uses ergon and follows it with agathos, that, those, that means good works, good deeds. That it's, it's an adjective that's modifying the word work. So here, I think Paul is really saying that she needs to be a good worker at home. Now, all this is to say that God does not want you to resign yourself, ladies, to be some dutiful housewife having some unimportant job that you're just supposed to do for the rest of your days. That's your assignment. Have fun. I think he adds this word good to emphasize a point. That he wants you to be excellent in your work at home. That, that there's an important, it's a quality of how you're to do that labor. That he desires it to be done cheerfully. And with diligence, with a good attitude, uh, to work heartily as to the Lord. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, do your work as to the Lord and not unto men. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. I think God wants you to realize that dirty dishes and dirty diapers, dirty toilets, managing meals, family events, organizing your home, ensuring all that are in it are cared for, that that action, those activities are spiritual activities. Just as spiritual as your time in the Word. Just as spiritual as prayer or coming here. And doing them is just as much a service to God. And as you do, you not only encourage your husband and your children, but more importantly, as the end of verse 5 indicates, you honor the Lord. That no one around you is cause for blaspheme because they see your testimony and your example in the home. Paul tells young widows in 1 Timothy 5.14 to remarry and to manage the home. And there he uses a word that he combines the word house or oikos again with the word despoteo. It should sound familiar. Despot. 
You're to be a home despot. Well, maybe not that extreme, but the idea is to be a master in your home, to, to manage your home, to master the affairs of it under the authority of your husband. That you've been given a great responsibility, an important responsibility, a significant one. You're a significant piece within the operation and workings of a family, the, the very basic unit of relationship in our culture. And that's an important task. That is priority of a wife. You've probably heard the saying, a, a woman's place is in the home. Well, I, I don't think that really captures it rightly. That just communicates she's just to be there in the home. That's where she belongs. No, I think a better way to say it is a woman's responsibility is her home. That's her priority. That's her primary job to make sure the home's being managed and those in it being cared for. And I would ask, ladies, do you see no greater career than to be a homemaker, home worker? Again, that does not mean you can never work outside the home or, or have responsibilities outside the home, especially for those of you who are single moms. This can be a necessary thing. But a wife and mother's primary focus and responsibility is her home. So you need to weigh that carefully when you are considering the time you spend outside the home, whether it is for work or whether it is for a community service or even ministry. Is that activity something that's going to distract you away from the responsibilities that you have for your family? Will it enhance those responsibilities in your home or take away from them? The world isn't going to promote you they not going to encourage and cheer you on to be a worker at home, right? They're not going to say, oh, how, how wonderful that you're trying to obey the word of God and, and focusing attention on your family. That's great. Keep on doing it. Rather, we'll do the opposite, just as I read earlier from that manifesto. The world will mock you. The world will demean you and seek to dissuade you. One author, one feminist author said this, being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. Another said, a a woman who stays at home caring for children in the house leads a parasitic existence that can aptly be described as legalized prostitution. The time has not only come, it is past due when marriage and motherhood as a life's goal should be cut out of the training of the female child. See what I mean? That's vicious. That is wicked. That is demeaning. It's intended to make you feel second rate. To make you feel as if you're a failure. But a failure in the world's eyes is success in God's eyes. Did the woman of Proverbs 31, did did she strike you as a weak, stupid, lazy individual having a parasitic existence? No way! That woman was incredible. She had an amazing impact in her home and in her community. She was respected by all those around her. She was diligent, creative, industrious, entrepreneurial, kind, hopeful, positive, wise, shrewd, caring, and successful. Her husband loved her. Her husband trusted her. Her children praised her and respected her. Her community honored her. And so did the Lord. Does that sound like an appealing thing to you, ladies, to have that? Don't listen to our culture. Don't listen to those around you who would demean the role of a home worker. Strive to be that good worker at home. 
And guys, remember, you need to value and appreciate your wives and your mothers. Hopefully this is a reminder to you to do that. You need to thank them for your labor for you and thank them not only in words but also by helping. She's not your personal maid. Grant her dignity. Grant her the respect she deserves by serving her. She's honoring God in what she's doing. I appreciated the... Someone came up to me this morning and just said how her husband had been praying this week and was thankful for his Waterford crystal vase. I said, she talk, do you guys have a vase? No, no, he's talking about me. So things like that, you know. Women need that encouragement, guys. They need that to be valued and cherished and appreciated. That's what will give them the strength and encouragement to keep going, to be doing a job that is extremely difficult, but one that God has called them to. Well, let's look back at Titus 2.5. Paul says, this is all to be done in submission to her own husband. We talked a lot about submission a few weeks ago from Ephesians 5.22, so I'd refer you to, to that message for more on that. But I just want to remind you that like in every other part of God's creation, He has built within the home an authority structure as well. That's how He has designed it. That's how He has structured it. And Ladies, it's important to realize that, that the submission that you've been called to is not just to, to Him but to Him, that that's why you should do it. In the end, as Paul says, that you do these things so the Word of God will not be dishonored, which literally is the word blasphemed. Your service in the end is to whom? It's to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? You submit to your husband for Christ's sake, and you submit to him whether he's a good leader or not, whether he's loving or not, whether he's appreciative or not, whether he's kind or not. Because if... If doing this, if, if submitting to your husband was only, uh, if it only was uh, doing it when your husband deserved it, well, ladies, hey, you're off the hook. You'd never have to because your husband is a sinner. But let me remind you in the same way that you wouldn't deserve for him to love you sacrificially either because you're a sinner too. If, if it all just depended on how you responded, then he wouldn't need to do it either. I told the men last week that it's not easy for you to be their wife. Well, in the same way, it's not easy for them to be your husband. Because you and he are both ones that desire to exalt self. We all do that. That's the word pride. We're all selfish. We all sin against one another. So this isn't an issue about the worthiness of your spouse. It's about the worthiness of Christ. These commands are not given as a, as a response to your spouse's behavior, but as a means to show your love to Jesus. Now, if your marriage is hard right now, if doing all of this, loving your husband and children, being sensible and pure, submitting to him, being a good worker at home, or you know, thinking about those things, or thinking about the Proverbs 31 woman and looking through that list and saying, man, I, just, I wish they'd never read that passage. I always feel guilty when they do that. You've got to be kidding. That's superwoman. I'm not even close. If you feel overwhelmed with all this stuff, I want to encourage you, move your eyes down the page to Titus 2, verse 11. The first 10 verses, Paul's given instruction to men and women, to wives, husbands, to, to Titus, to leaders, to those who are involved in the slave-master relationship. All very difficult, very hard to live out God's will in any of those circumstances. And Paul gives the reason. 
and the foundation and the motivation in verse 11. And he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That should be an encouragement. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And through that, Paul's telling us, and if we keep reading in Titus, that that God has saved you so that you may be able to do this. Without Him, you can't. But with His grace and strength and the Holy Spirit working in your life and your submission to Him, God will work through you to be what He's designed you to be, a godly wife, godly husband, a godly son or daughter, godly mother, godly father. Grace of God stands ready to help you live these principles out. Because again, as I've said often, He doesn't command you to do things that if you're His child, He won't give you the grace to do. That's why God has saved you. And God's road is not always an easy road, but God's road is always the best road. His word is eternal. It applied not only in Paul's day, not only to the men and women of his culture, it applies to us today. It applies to our culture and our time. I mean, think, think of this. Think if somebody gave you the latest iPad. And so you take that thing, it's for your birthday, and you go, oh, this is cool. This would make a great snack tray. I mean, look at this thing. It's got enough space. I can put my drink here and my little snack here, and it's all nice and smooth so I can clean it off real easy. This is wonderful. Thank you. And you're sitting there going, no, 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 no. Let me show you what this thing can do. This thing is amazing. It's not a snack tray. And they say, no, 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 no. I, this is what, that's what I want to use it for. This is what it looks good for. I don't, I don't need your help. Thanks a lot. And you're thinking, how dumb is that? To take such a piece of equipment, an expensive piece of equipment, by the way, and to do that with it. You know, eventually, if you use it that way, that's all it's going to be good for is as a coaster. Well, God, is He specially designed men and women. And He knows how we work. And He knows how we will function and be most fulfilled. He's given us instruction on how we can do that in passages such as Titus 2. And if you ignore that or fight against it or or try to change it, not only will you not be fulfilling the purpose for which God has designed you, but you'll eventually break and you'll never experience the blessing God has for you. At the same time, too, you will suffer consequences for disobeying the Lord. Because again, brothers and sisters, Satan wants to convince you that the Bible is outdated, that the Bible is wrong. He's attacked God's word from the very beginning, right? You remember the instruction in the garden. What was it? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what was Satan's comments to Eve? Did God really say? Well, he's doing it again today. Did God really say for you to be a worker at home? Did God really say to be subject to your husband, to to make your family your priority? He's again trying to deceive by by telling you God's with he's withholding something from you. He's trying to keep you back from some good things. Don't don't trust everything he's telling you here. But sisters, you've been Specially designed by God, physically and emotionally, to care for a family, to nurture children, to be a helpmate to your husband, 
And you weren't built like a man. And I'm glad for it. You're a wonderful masterpiece of God's design. And He's given you a special role within His world. So trust in God's plan for you. Trust Him. And men, remember what we talked about last week. Cherish and value her. Don't lord your authority over her. Be humble. Be sacrificial. Help her to be an excellent wife. And prepare your daughters for this as well. For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want that. We desire that to, to be honored and blessed by you. Lord, as we fear you, as we seek to obey you, to walk with you, to show our love to you, to honor you in all that we say and do. And I pray especially for our women in this, in this body. Or for those who are still in the role of a mother or a wife or both, that, Lord, that you would strengthen and encourage them, that they would not look at these responsibilities that you've given and, and just feel overwhelmed and defeated and, and frustrated. That, but, Lord, that you would grant them by your Spirit to strengthen them in, in their inner selves, that they would, Lord, long for these things, that older women would come alongside them and, and encourage and help them. Lord, that the men here would, would exalt and honor this role that you have given women, that we would not look down upon it, Lord, but see it as a, a wonderful example of someone trusting you and doing things that are difficult and hard. Lord, I thank you for, for the ladies that you have brought here that are part of this church and just would ask, Lord, that uh, you would bless them. Lord, too, we would desire to see your son honored this week. So please use us. Help us to take advantage of every opportunity. Lord, to see the open doors before us and to proclaim Christ through our words and our actions. And we pray in his name. Amen.